From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker for the final edition of this long year that took until almost Christmas Eve to get a budget done. But we have an omnibus spending package now. We want to talk about how that fight played out all year and then look ahead to what we should expect next year in the big appropriations and tax battles to come. Joining me to do that, I've got an all-star panel here today. I've got Lindsay McPherson. Thank you for being here, Lindsay. Thanks for having me as always. All CQ Roll Call reporters. I've got Aiden Quigley. Thanks again, Aiden. Thanks for having me. I've got Laura Weiss, the, the CQ Roll Star tax reporter. Thanks again, Laura. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I've got Paul Krozak, our senior budget writer. Thanks for being here, Paul. And thank you, David. So it took almost till Christmas Eve to get this omnibus spending package done. Came three months late with a quarter of the fiscal year already gone, of course, but they finally did it. $1.7 trillion worth of discretionary spending. After this long battle that played out almost all year long uh, between the two parties, uh, mostly in a fight over how much to give to defense versus non-defense programs. So who won, guys? I, I'd say they both won. I'd say they both won. I mean, Republicans got the defense number um, that they wanted, and it was probably to be expected that they ultimately would. The um, Democrats did not get as much of a non-defense increase as they wanted, but they did get a uh, number of other spending programs uh, that they wanted as part of the omnibus. Well, I don't totally disagree with Paul. I'd argue that Republicans won considering their positioning. You know, Democrats have control of the House, Senate, and White House. And for them not to get a higher increase in non-defense spending because just Senate Republicans, the only other they were the only Republicans participating in this negotiation just because they needed 10 of their votes. Like, I'd it's hard to say that Democrats really won in this, given the power dynamic in which they entered it. I think Republicans definitely won. Yeah, I agree with Lindsay's assessment there. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, it came down to Democrats looking at the alternative, since Republicans were not budging from their top line number, the alternative of a full year CR, which would have been worse. They would have gotten no non-defense increase. So weighing the alternative of a year-long CR, which is what the Democrats were saying was the only other option, or a shorter-term CR in which the incoming Republican House with the slim majority uh, potential for chaos in that scenario, you know, looking at the deal they got, they thought that was the best of the three possible options when we were coming down to crunch time here uh, in, in late December. But I, I, if you do take a wider look, I would agree that the Republicans did get a pretty good, a pretty good deal for their, for their priorities uh, here. Yeah, I think I'd say, I mean, both sides, of course, claim they won, right? And each side can point to some victories in the bill for them that, that reflects their priorities. I think that was the point Paul was making. But I think when it comes down to it, you know, Democrats had sought all year for, for parity between the defense and non-defense numbers, and Republicans were adamant all year that they had to get more for defense this time than for non-defense. And on that basic battle, I think it's fair to say Republicans won. Defense is much higher than non-defense. 
you know, and, and Democrats realized they had to cave on that or they wouldn't get a bill. Right. So I do think it's fair to say Republicans effectively won in the end, although, you know, Democrats can certainly point to all the victories they had on non-defense priorities and the fact that they produced a bill despite a 50, uh, you know, the fact that they produced a bill at all instead of resorting to a stopgap measure uh, or a shutdown uh, is is a victory when you have a 50-50 Senate and, and, you know, they they barely had control. So I think I think that's where we where we land. what about all the amendment battles that, that played into this? Because I think the thing that struck me the most, I think, uh, when you when you watch the Senate debate on the bill, was how this whole thing almost came derailed again over a fight again over immigration policy. Uh, that amendment by Mike Lee, the Utah senator, to, an effort to rescind the uh, to, to prevent. Uh, lifting the Title 42 policy that has prevented for months migrants seeking asylum from staying in the country. That effort really threw them for a loop, and it took a whole extra day and night at least of negotiating to, to, to be able to kill that thing. And it just showed again how immigration is such a powerful political weapon on both sides that can derail any other legislative initiative. We saw that same that same issue derail earlier this spring, if folks remember, there was that bipartisan agreement in the Senate for more COVID aid, right? I think it was about $10 billion. And the whole thing came unglued after Biden announced he would lift Title 42 on immigration. And Republicans were incensed the same way, saying if there's no more COVID to worry about at the border, then why are we worrying about more COVID aid for the United States? And it, it scuttled the deal, right? The whole thing came unglued. We almost saw that happen again with this omnibus package. Yeah, on uh, late Wednesday night, we had expected the Senate might be able to pass uh, the bill at that time, but it got pushed to Thursday because of, as you explained, the Mike Lee Amendment. Democrats were able to work out a way around it. Uh, it, there was a cinema tester proposal, which featured billions more in funding for the border, as well as keeping Title 42 in place, which allowed these more moderate Democrats a chance to say that they, uh, you know, it allowed them to vote no on the Lee Amendment, while still saying that they, you know, wanted Title 42 to stay in place. So that was a, a, a way around that. Uh, debate and that helped pave the way for final passage, which we saw. And Lindsay, talk about talk about the House vote, if you will, because we did see bipartisan support for this package in the Senate, where you had eighteen Senate Republicans join all the Democrats. That was a pretty healthy, I would say, bipartisan vote for this. Not so in the House, right? This was almost cleanly a party line vote. You had so few Republicans joining in. Can you speak to those dynamics and why the disparity there between House and Senate? Yeah, the, ma- the major difference was that Senate Republican leadership was supportive of the omnibus. Mitch McConnell, Richard Shelby, they helped, you know, the appropriations ranking member, they helped negotiate it and they were party to the deal. So they were, and by extension, going to bring some support along with them. On the House side, um, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, and Kay Granger, the appropriations ranking member, did not participate in the negotiations. They decided they didn't want to get an omnibus deal 
in December, they, they had been pushing since even as far back as when they were negotiating the first CR to get us um, from September to December, they wanted to have a CR that would go into next Congress because um, even before the election, they thought they were going to win the majority. They did win the majority, not by as much as they had hoped, but they think that being in the majority next Congress, they would be able to negotiate a better spending deal. And, you know, they come from a different position than Senate Republicans. They actually do want to cut overall discretionary spending. And so they weren't going to agree to the numbers that, you know, Senate Republicans were offering. So they just had a different position. They whipped against the omnibus and ultimately only nine Republicans voted for it. And only two of those nine are returning next Congress. Yeah, so most of them are on their way out. Those are the only ones who really voted for it. And you raise a good point because I do I do think that speaks to the different political dynamics of the two chambers, right, where the Senate will main, remain under Democratic control next year and Republicans in the House know they're going to take the majority next year. And so why not punt on this bill and try to get a better bill next year was their overriding motivation in the House. And they're, they're just a more conservative faction there to begin with. And so you saw you saw these competing uh, political agendas there between House and Senate that made it even messier, I think, uh, for this bill to get done. And Laura, you know, we normally see at the end of the year uh, an extension of all these popular tax breaks that, that you know, that they, everyone wants to continue. And we didn't see that in this bill. What, what happened this year that, that there was no, no real tax legislation? Yeah, so I think, you know, top tax writers had a hope that that would come together for weeks, if not months. But in the end, we only saw a bipartisan retirement bill make it in there that was negotiated among the Senate and House because they had different versions of the bill. But in the end, almost everyone's priorities were able to make it into the final version because it turned out they had a little more in terms of pay fors. And so that helped them out to have it be a fully paid for bill. Everything else really uh, got dragged down by disagreement between Democrats and Republicans. Republicans wanted to extend some business incentives and Democrats were okay with you know that, but they said if that was going to happen, there had to be something to help sort of everyday families, mainly the child tax credit. And Republicans were not willing to negotiate that is what they said, and Republicans viewed it as Democrats asking for too much. So uh, that really got dragged down. And now we're in a situation where there really isn't a clear path toward tax legislation passing in the near future. So you have a lot of lobbyists, advocates, sort of now adjusting to the fact that for what they didn't expect weeks ago, that some of these tax issues some of which are widely supported on Capitol Hill, just don't have a path forward at this point. Yeah, so uh, really in action on that front. Um, and we should say the other thing that struck me about the omnibus was uh, even though even a lot of the Republicans who voted against it uh, managed to secure some victories in this bill. Folks might want to check out on CQ.com and RollCall.com. Our own Peter Cohn and Herb Jackson have a, have a good little story up now on all of the earmarks that House Republicans managed to get in the bill, even though they voted against the bill in the end, there's something like $3 billion, I think, Aiden, of earmarks that all came from uh, Republicans who voted against the bill. Yeah, Pete Story does a good job of, of laying out 
the dynamics there. You know, these Republicans, you know, they would say that the while they were proud of the work they did for their district and the projects they're bringing home, the overall price tag was just way too high. Um, that would be the, probably their main main argument there. Okay. Any other thoughts on how this omnibus package got done or didn't done as the year went on? Well, I mean, I think it's important to um, understand that there was there was a lot of pressure from conservatives in the House to um, to vote against this omnibus package and to instead have a, a stopgap spending bill that would go into next year. Um, and the um, you know Kevin McCarthy, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe at some point he really would have preferred getting the omnibus passed this year so that it would clear the decks for next year. Um, but there was great pressure from conservatives not to do that. And he is, he's running for speaker. Um, and and it, it's not clear that he has the votes for speaker. So, I mean, he really had to satisfy the, the conservatives in the House. Um, and so, I mean, and, and there was pressure on really every Republican in the House to stay united and vote against this. Um, and looking ahead toward next year with the budget and with appropriations and with everything else, it's going to be a real challenge. I mean, whoever is speaker, and it'll probably be McCarthy, it's going to be a real challenge for that leader to maintain unity um, in, in the among Republicans in the House in order to pass anything. So I, I, w- I would say, you know, they... They met the test this year in terms of almost unanimous opposition to the to the omnibus in the House. Yeah, that does bring us to next year, and that that is what I was wondering: is how ugly of a fight is this going to be, and does the whole process break down, or can they reach some bipartisan deal? What what does the outlook seem like uh, to all of you at this point? It's certainly difficult to have House Republicans negotiate with Senate Democrats. I mean, it's not like the, you know, two parties holding both chambers would be easier to negotiate, even if Senate Republicans and House Republicans are on a different page. But like Senate Democrats and House Republicans are not just on a different page, they're in different worlds when it comes to spending priorities. It's going to be very difficult. You know, I think President Biden, you know, for the most part, the Biden administration has been a supporting actor in terms of appropriations negotiations, but the administration might need to take a more active kind of role in kind of trying to negotiate truces um, if the negotiations aren't going well, which I could foresee between the lawmakers. Um, it, it's not going to be easy, that's for sure, but it does help that they have... Um, this deal done and now don't have to fund the government until the end of September. Yeah, they have till the end of next September. But it's worth pointing out, I think, that this bill came three months late, even under all Democratic control, right? They produced a bill that came three months late with a quarter of the fiscal year already over. Last year, under total Democratic control, they produced a bill that came almost six months late, half the year gone before they could get it done. And that was under Democratic, bare Democratic majorities in both chambers. Not a great track record there. And there's a long history of this bill getting done way late. Any reason to think that changes next year, that they can speed up the process? Of course, I think the greater risk with the Republican House would be the thing gets derailed or gets even later, right? 
I don't know. What do we make of that? Yeah, it's only only going to be more difficult, I think, for divided government to to come to an agreement here, as Lindsay laid out, uh, especially with the such a thin majority in the House and some House Republicans who are never going to vote for spending increases, which you would need to get Senate Democrats in the White House on board. So it'll definitely be contentious and, and something to keep an eye on as we move forward into uh, you know the next next fiscal year as we get into the fall. And Laura, any reason to think that there's hope of any bipartisan legislation in this divided Congress next year for, for tax measures? Yeah, so I think that's going to be really, really complicated. House Republicans and Senate Democrats are also very far apart on tax and taxes are always complicated regardless in terms of sort of competing priorities. But there will be some things we're watching in the tax space. First, the Ways and Means race to be the next chairman among Republicans. We're expecting that that will happen shortly after the speaker's race is settled. And then after that, there's a need to really establish the makeup of the committee. We're expecting somewhere around up to maybe 10 new Republicans on the committee because the Republican side will expand. Democrats will likely have to shrink a bit depending on what agreement uh, the parties in the House come to on that. And so wouldn't expect uh, quick activity on tax, ways and means. Republicans will probably take a while to get going, to get set up with all those things up in the air. And you know, then I think it will be a pretty tough path toward any agreement, but you do have a lot of now outstanding tax issues, things like full upfront R&D expensing that everyone, pretty much most members of Congress support and is at a point where companies are really pushing for that. So we'll see if they're able to take anything up. Uh, but regardless, we do expect that Senate Finance has the nomination of Danny Werfel to be IRS commissioner uh, from President Biden. Expected that will be resubmitted and, and there will be activity around that at some point. And you also have the Treasury and IRS working to implement Democrats' uh, budget reconciliation bill from this year. So there will be activity in the tax space, but I think it'll be a really hard path toward some kind of actual legislation when that couldn't come together, even just needing 10 or so, you know, Senate Republicans on board. And I know that the the big tax priority for Democrats has been this push to restore the expanded child tax credit that they they really claim to be a huge victory in their bill uh, when until it expired. But they they you know they they say it reduced child poverty by forty percent. They're so eager to get that restored. Republicans have been very resistant to it. I think fearing they see it more as sort of welfare payments because there's no work requirement attached to it. With a new Republican House, uh, safe to say that's pretty much dead, or what do you think? So Jason Smith, who's one of the Republicans running to be Ways and Means chairman, has said the child tax credit is the kind of thing he prioritized. He's more of a populist. He's talked a lot about Ways and Means focusing on things that help poorer Americans. But I think that Democrats and Republicans have a very different vision of what that looks like and what their priorities are. Democrats really want to expand it for 
Americans earning the least, maybe who don't have income. They're concerned about grandparents or single parents who are taking care of children and might not be earning much or even any income. And Republicans are really concerned and draw a hard line at work requirements. So it's not really clear that there would be able to be agreement that either side would find worth it there. Um, But in 2025, you have Republicans 2017 tax law, individual provisions, a good number of things under that law sunsetting after 2025. So I think we'll start to see some of those debates. House Republicans are expected to focus a lot around that discussion. And one of the things they did was expand the size of the child tax credit. But that's not really the way Democrats have focused on this. So it sounds like you're telling me the safest thing to bet on for next year would be these research and development credits? I I mean, we'll see. I think there are tax provisions that there's more agreement on, but we've seen Democrats hold the line of being unwilling to do R&D without the child tax credit. So I I think probably it's going to be a tough path to do anything. Like I mentioned, tax is always tough. This was viewed as the opportunity to do it. And I don't think people are expecting much movement, at least for a while. But I think it will continue to be part of the discussion because you have business incentives phasing down that were widely supported. You have the child tax credit, like you mentioned, that some, especially Senate Democrats still in the majority, will continue to talk about. Uh, But I think it's a different question on if anything can get done, because there's always the question of, agreement than a vehicle. There's just so much to overcome there. Okay. But we can't leave this discussion without addressing what is probably the most climactic fight in fiscal policy next year, which is raising the debt limit, right? Sometime, we don't know when, but sometime probably by next summer or fall, that debt limit is going to have to be raised to avoid... (laughs) calamity, default, whatever you want to call it. Both sides really know the debt limit has to be raised. Neither side really likes to do it, but Republicans really hate to do it without spending curbs alongside it. They've already signaled in the House that they're gunning for a fight like that. Sounds like we're in for an ugly battle there. What do you think? How do you think this plays out? Well, I it, yeah, it will be an ugly battle. It's kind of interesting. You go back to 2011, um, and which is when the Budget Control Act was passed. That was the uh, the, the law that established uh, discretionary spending caps for 10 years. Those have since expired. But uh, you had a Republican-controlled House, a Democratic-controlled Senate, and you had a Democratic president. So we're going to have a similar situation next year. So, I mean, it, it's conceivable that, uh, you know, that some kind of agreement could be, reached, could be reached between Republicans and Democrats to raise the debt limit with conditions attached, um, spending curbs, um, you know, uh, changes in spending policy, you know, something like that. I don't know what the odds of that are, but I mean... There's, there's certain to be a battle, and, and it's conceivable that, uh, that they could reach uh, some kind of agreement that would attach conditions. And that hasn't really happened in any real way since 2011. 
So it would really be something if if they did do that next year, but it's possible. Yeah, but you raise a good point, Paul, because that 2011 battle, which was pretty titanic under Obama, did result in that law that triggered a decade's worth of, of spending caps or spending cuts, however you look at it, uh, that they lived under, well, you could argue whether they really lived under them or not because they kept raising the caps every year. <laughs> you could argue how effective that was, but it did trigger that law that, that they had to deal with at least for a decade um, it would be interesting if, if this now sets the stage for another one of those kind of laws. Well, there are definitely Republicans' interest in that, but I will say, while Democrats definitely don't want to negotiate around the debt ceiling, how long that posture can last if Republicans are threatening like, to take it to the brink of default will remain to be seen. But one thing that could certainly happen is because they will need to negotiate spending levels and come up with even uh, without budget caps, they have to agree between the parties to write the spending bills. They have to come up with top lines as I could see them potentially negotiating at least top lines for the next like two years while house Republicans are in the majority and having a debt ceiling be part of that negotiation um, where they can come up with kind of, these are the things we have to do under this divided government. Let's at least work it all out in one big deal. I mean, that, that's something conceivably that could happen. I don't know for sure, like Paul said, what the odds of that are, but that to me it would make sense for them to have one big negotiation um, since that's something they have to take care of as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be a nasty one. And it does seem as though the House Republicans are really gunning for a fight on that. My sense is anyway, that they, they've made very clear for months now that, that, that a debt limit increase should not be a free ride and it has to come with other spending curbs. Some people have also talked about uh, overhauls of the entitlement programs, right, as part of this, which would even be, you know, we're talking Social Security, Medicare, uh, which would even be a heavier lift to, to, to contemplate any sort of cuts in those kind of programs as part of a debt limit deal. Uh, but there's no question they have leverage here. No, they know they have the leverage during debt limit negotiations as opposed to any other time if you want to talk about something as difficult as, as Social Security and Medicare reforms. Um, so I could see from their perspective why it would be tempting, at least, to go down that road uh, and see if they could push for anything as part of this. Yeah, well, so that's another question of whether they will pursue changes in, in entitlement programs. That was pretty much off the table during the uh, Trump administration among Republicans. And and it's been off the table since then. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, Republicans could, they could focus on cutting non-defense discretionary spending next year, um, or they could focus on entitlement programs. Um, I, I would think the odds are probably they'll focus more on cutting non-defense discretionary, uh, but we'll see. And of course, we've also heard talk from Democrats uh, more and more that they'd like to just abolish the debt limit altogether. They say it serves no purpose. All it does is trigger these these you know fiscal cliffs and and set the financial markets on uh, teetering, and that the time to address spending is when you pass spending bills, not when the credit card bill comes due and to raise the debt limit. But hard to believe under a Republican House there would be any any momentum now to try to do something like abolish the debt limit, right? Right. Too much opposition to that. Not going to happen. They would. They should have tried to do it when they had the full 
control and they didn't and I'm not sure they would have got it through then they certainly won't get it through next congress yeah so that that one's not an option and it's a matter of how do you cut a deal what kind of spending curbs do you have to do to get enough support for raising the debt limit inconceivable to me that they wouldn't raise the debt limit in the end but it's going to be a battle and and it'll, we'll have to see how it plays out it's going to be an interesting interesting politically tense year as they gear up for re-elections and in this divided Congress. But that's all the time we have for now. Aiden Quigley, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having me. Paul Krozak, again, thanks. Thank you, David. Laura Weiss, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Great to be with you. And Lindsay McPherson, as always, thanks. Thanks. Happy New Year, everyone. That'll do it for us today, but you can catch all of our coverage at CQ.com or RollCall.com. Please take a look. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker. We wish all of you a happy new year, and we'll see you next year.